You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to NSPS Radio Hour for another edition. Today I have Jim Vienna with me. Did Brian, was Brian able to join us? Yes, sir. Good morning. Well, hi, Brian. So I have Brian McGee as well. Thanks for thanks for being with us. I thought I heard when you came on, but I wasn't exactly sure. So uh, glad to have you both with me today. It's uh, an interesting topic we're going to talk about today, and, it, and it's tied to uh, one of the, the reasons we're bringing it up today is that it's tied to the upcoming uh, Surveyors Historical Society rendezvous, which will take place September is it September 28th through October 1st? I believe are the correct dates. That's correct. And uh, and and sort of unfortunately, our, we had a planning snafu. We ended up scheduling our board meeting for NSPS that same weekend, but we're going to be out in Arizona. So, um, we'll more than likely you all will take a few people from our board rather than us taking any of your audience. <laughs> Because there are quite a few of the people on our board, uh, and, and particularly uh, uh, Rich Lou and and Bart Craddy. and I suppose you guys know those those fellows. Um, but they'll they're going to be coming to the rendezvous, and we'll have some other representative for their states, I think, which is the way it should be. Um, but I was interested when I was reading about the rendezvous coming up, and I want to talk about that. But I also was really intrigued by the whole concept of the Colvin crew that, that I think, Jim, you told me about. And so I've done a little bit of research and looked up the website and that kind of stuff. Um, sounds like a, a really interesting group that's been around for a while. It, it is, Kurt. And, and first, let me just say uh, thank you very much for the opportunity um, you've given us to spread the word about the Surveyors Historical Society Rendezvous. and. Somebody we're a little passionate about, and that's Verplank Colvin. Um, the Colvin crew was formed in 1998 by a uh, land surveyor and instructor at Ranger School named Kerm Remley. Um, and it's kind of a kind of a mixed bag of, of individuals. We're not they're not all surveyors. They're just people that really like the Adirondacks and like to get out and do a little hiking. Um, so we have some fun recovering uh, some of the marks that Verplank Colvin set back in the 1800s. And we, we have about a 140-person membership list or so. And we try to do about two trips a year where we get out. Sometimes they're uh, overnight hiking trips and sometimes just, just day trips. So the when you get out, it's really uh, an exploration of sorts, I guess, um, when I, I think I was read this somewhere, maybe on the on the website, or perhaps it was in some of the other information I was reading about Verplant Colvin. Uh, he set a, a lot of marks, if if I remember correctly. That's that's correct. Um, we we think there's generally about 300 primary triangulation points that he established on uh, all over the Adirondacks, um, and then of course there's many hundreds more uh, secondary and boundary points that are out there. Um, some are on lakes, some are on mountain peaks. Uh, it's really really a very interesting story that we really hope to uh, explore in depth um, during the rendezvous. 
Yeah, and I, I was wanting to talk about that as much as we could today, just to get people uh, ginned up to 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 come to the rendezvous. One one of the things I found interesting as I was looking at the uh, information, uh, Mr. Renley had given a presentation back in 2002 during the FIG International Conference. That's correct. That, that conference was held in conjunction with. We were ACSM back in those days, and our partner was ASPRS for, generally speaking, we had spring meetings together way before I ever came along, which was in the, the early 80s, I guess. Um, and But that conference was, I think, the last spring conference we held together. We're thinking about doing another one this coming year uh, for various reasons. We went in different directions for conferencing, but the two of us, Two of our organizations teamed together to entice FIG to bring its Congress here, and uh, so uh, it was interesting to me when I saw that reference that he had made that presentation during yes, the conference. Yes, uh, very big honor, and um, it got the word out. I think a little bit on the international scene about Verplank Colvin. Uh, both Brian and myself are uh, Colvin crew members, uh, local area surveyors here in upstate New York, and. Uh, We've been working on putting this uh, rendezvous together now for, uh, oh, what, Brian, probably just a little over two years or so. Yep. Uh-huh. Yeah, the, the uh, just, I didn't want to interrupt, but just really quickly, the the way that works is, if I'm, if I'm understanding it correctly, with the Historical Society, um, someone will come up with a, a, an idea of where they'd like to hold a, a rendezvous, and then... I, do you make a, an official proposal to the society, or or how does that work exactly? Yes, that's uh, correct. It's kind of interesting. Um, I believe three years ago, there the Surveyors Historical Society held a rendezvous in Philadelphia, and right, a number true. of members of the Colvin crew came down from New York and attended that, uh, which I was one. And we were just just very impressed with the the quality of the program the Surveyors Historical Society put on for that rendezvous, and it really was a oh an eye opener, I guess you could say, um, to what kind of work is done out there. So this little group there, I guess I guess there was about a half dozen of us down there in attendance. Um, geez, the last day we kind of all said, huh, we ought to. We ought to maybe put something together on Verplank Colvin and and see if the uh, Historical Society would be interested uh, in hosting a rendezvous. So oh, a few meetings later, we put together a proposal, and we submitted a proposal to the Board of Directors. Um, they reviewed it and approved it and set it up for uh, 2016. And since then, we've, <laughs> we've been learning a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's, there's a... Um a lot that goes into planning a conference, regardless of whether you're doing content or logistics or both, um, whatever the case may be. I, I think sometimes people kind of get the idea that those things just sort of happen, but they don't. No, one of the best decisions I made when I, when I started was I, I got Brian McGee on board, and Brian uh, <laughs> has many years of experience uh, in putting on conferences with the New York State Association of Professional Land Surveyors, and um, he's, uh, he's really the man behind the scenes. 
Yeah, well, Brian, if you've been doing it for all those years, you you know as well as anybody uh, what it takes. And you know, we we deal with them to some degree here. I mean, we we usually have some level of of help, but not a great deal of help. And then each of our state societies, of course, hold a conference every year. And sometimes I'm I, I don't know how they put together such great conferences, just like just like the historical society. They they do such a good job and. The leadership is very helpful. The the staff is very efficient, and uh, it's great when you have that kind of support. Uh, it is. It's uh, it's a lot of work and a lot of planning involved putting a conference together. Uh, but when you have the right people on the team, it uh, it's it makes it go smooth, and uh, you can get a lot accomplished in a short amount of time. You know, you guys at Nice Apples always do such a great job with your conference. I, was this a, a similar process, or did you find there were differences? Uh, it's a little bit different, but uh, kind of draw on that experience. Uh, nice Apples has a great staff that uh, really do a lot of the legwork, um, and we kind of help out uh, with some ideas and, and the, some of the planning that's involved. So we were able to draw on that to get this put together. I don't think I really could have done it without that experience. Oh, I would. I would think that's probably true. And and when you're planning something like this, it's uh, it's a it's different. I think in the sense that with the conferences, the state conferences, and, and in particular with Nice Apples, uh, you have a formula that works well for you, and you usually have a pretty decent idea of how many people are going to show up. Uh, something like this one, I guess, is a little more challenging in trying to figure out how many people to anticipate, and then, of course, that goes into your planning of rooms to reserve or rooms to set aside and that kind of thing. Right. I mean, this is uh, going to be a lot smaller than our annual conference. We usually get five to 600 attendees at our annual conference. Um, this we've booked a facility that can max out at 300 and uh, I guess we're pretty well on our way to that with our registration so far that's yeah, one of the things I'll oh, go ahead Jim I was just, just going to comment on Brian um, we've opened registration right around about the second week of May and we're still under what we call the early bird registration um, we're about a, almost a third of the way towards that 300 number right now um and I, I imagine we'll, we'll get into the registration a little later here in the interview, but uh, it's it's filling up nicely. Yeah, and, and being a surveyor myself and also planning conferences where surveyors are involved, we all know that we're really good at procrastination and in, in, uh, registering early. So uh, <laughs> if, you're, if you're that far along already, you should be just fine. <laughs> Well, we, we we hope so. It's it's as you said earlier. It's uh, you never really know the exact number, and that does make it a little bit of a challenge. Um, you know, when you're when you have field activities and you have to book motor coach and and that type of thing. But uh, it's so far, it seems to be working out quite nicely. That's good, and and I do. I, we're almost to the to the first break, so I won't get to the end of this at this point. But that's one of the things I want to talk about when we come back is is what some of those activities are are going to be. Uh, one of the things I've seen over the years is the rendezvous are always so well put together, and it seems as though there's a 
a pretty loyal audience uh, of attendees who who go wherever the 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 rendezvous happens to be, and then of course you're going to draw local people, regardless of where you are across the country. But um, one of the things I've always been impressed with in the in the, the uh, historical society is how how hardworking and and loyal to the cause the members are. Yes, yes, they are. And many uh, members attend every year. Uh, of course, I know many of uh, the listeners here are probably familiar with uh, John Brock from Australia. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, he will be returning. Uh, it's, it's a big commitment on a lot of people to, you know, fly across the country and attend a seminar on somebody they may not be familiar of. But as you say, um, there's a, a very good repeat uh, level of participation. Yep, that's for sure. Yeah, and we'll talk about John a little bit and see what he's going to do for you guys out there. I, he's such a cool guy. I don't know if you've met him before, but he's he's really really interesting guy. And we're right at our break, by the way. So uh, let's go take our first break, and we'll come back and pick up on what some of those activities and speakers are going to be. Want to know if your Seanstead locator is still under warranty? Go to Seanstead.com and click on Warranty Finder in the lower left-hand corner. Enter your six-digit serial number, and it will tell you everything you need to know. Out of warranty? Click on Repair Department. But here's a tip. Before sending it in, pick up a $25 discount by going to Specials and Sales under the Buy Now tab at www.seanstedt.com. Don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's Web Radio. Quick Stakes is your answer to staking. Lightweight, easy to ride on, easy to use, easy to find, and won't break your back carrying them like the old-fashioned wooden stakes. Have you tried a sample? If not, get a pen and paper and write down this number. 800-438-0387 or go to quickstake.com that's Q-U-I-K-S-T-A-K-E dot com and order your samples. Ask your surveying supply dealer for quickstakes today. Attention surveyors, Seanstead announces the Maggie, the next generation magnetic locator. The Maggie combines the best features of two flagship Seanstead products, the sensitivity and precision of the GA52CX and the visual display and single-handed operation of the GA92XT. Contact your dealer for details or go to www.seanstead.com. Seanstead, the best just got better. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. As we were going to break, I uh, mistook what, what Jim was saying about John. John Brock is going to attend, but he's not going to present, so I don't want to give the wrong impression there. But we were talking about uh, people like him and surveyors from other parts of the world are certainly willing to travel to, to go a lot of places. I want to talk about some of the activities, but maybe a good way to lead into what those activities are going to be is if if... Jim, you and Brian could share with us some background on who, for the for the audience, who Verplank Colvin was. Uh, certainly, um, maybe I, I, I'll give you a little history on Verplank, and then Brian, maybe if you want to run through uh, some of the highlights of uh, the rendezvous. Okay. Uh, 
Verplank Colvin was uh, born in 1847, and he was the son of a uh, fairly uh, well-connected and well-to-do uh, attorney in Albany, New York. Uh, I believe he was also a, the father was a state senator. And Verplank uh, grew up uh, doing hiking trips in the Adirondacks. And in, sh- and in short, he noticed that the mapping, existing mapping at that time of the Adirondacks was just wildly inaccurate. Um, they showed mountains where there was lakes and lakes where there was mountains. They really didn't have a firm grasp on the size and extent of the Adirondacks. And on a quick side note, um, the Adirondack Park in New York is the largest park in the continental United States, uh, comprising roughly about 5.8 million acres. Um, and to some people maybe not familiar with New York, they, they find that hard to believe that such a large park could be in New York, um, but there is. And it's about a 50-50 split of um, wild, forever protected land and uh, private land. Uh, it's a very rugged area. Uh, it has a lot of history on uh, how it um, was formed. And that's something we'll, we'll get into a little on the, and during the rendezvous. But uh, Verplank, um, while working for his father's law firm, um, was exposed to deeds and, and uh, surveys and uh, real property transactions. And he, he seemed to really have a penchant for that. And he decided to uh, start doing some surveying in the Adirondacks where he uh, received a, uh, uh, he submitted a petition to the, to the New York State Legislature uh, and received a, a stipend to, uh, to determine some of the higher mountain elevations. And that's basically how it started. Um, his official capacity ran from 1872 to 1900. And then his department was abolished by uh, then Governor of New York, Teddy Roosevelt. Uh, The reason we find uh, him very interesting, he was an extremely gifted uh, author and illustrator, uh, wrote a number of articles that were uh, published in Harper's Magazine uh, early on. And what he does for us surveyors, in short, is he provided that all-important bridge between the early colonial-era surveys from the late 1700s and today's time. Uh, He went out, found the original evidence of the early surveyors, and then he perpetuated that evidence with with permanent marks that we can use today to retrace and follow in the footsteps of those uh, individuals. Uh, So that's his surveying contribution, His perhaps his bigger contribution in the eyes of the public was his work towards creating the Adirondack Park. Um, He he was not the only proponent of creating this park, but he certainly was one of the loudest. And the the really neat thing is he used land surveying as a tool to do so. And I I think that's possibly somewhat unmatched um, in the country. Um, It allowed, land surveying allowed Verplank the opportunity to, to get into the the woods and publicize his findings and push for the creation of the park. So it's it's kind of a really unique mix. So when he was doing his work in the park, and you were talking about 
part of it part of it being private, part of it being uh, designated as an official park. Um, was there a time when all the land was privately owned, or was it still just state lands before the park? That's correct. Uh, a lot of it was privately owned. Um, a very interesting history. A lot of the land was grant- granted to soldiers of the Revolutionary War um, as payment for, for services in the war, as there was no money available. Um, these these individuals were lucky enough to survive the Revolutionary War. They went up there and found that it was just just the worst property you could own for farming. <laughs> And yeah. they quick, they quickly sold their shares to uh, you know large industrial uh, companies uh, for timber harvesting and or mineral extraction. And once the timber harvesters, uh, you know, they would log a piece and then they would let it go for taxes. So it pretty quickly there, you know, went back into the state coffers. I guess you would say. Um, although Colvin did, uh, and this is going to be actually one of our uh, seminars. Colvin uh, did discover an area called the Great Gore, and I don't have the exact acreage within this gore, but it, it was very considerable. And he kind of presented that to the state and said, this is the nucleus for the creation of such a park. Uh, so we're going to have a real interesting seminar on that. So in short, it was it was basically all private, and a lot of it was patented in, in very large sections um, back in the late 1700s. So the the Great Gore was a parcel that hadn't been uh, given out in shares, or was just that's correct. It not was, claimed uh, by anybody, so to speak. It was unpatented crown lands, I guess you could say. I see. Okay. Um, and due to the how the earlier surveyors interpreted um, the descriptions of the grants and ran the lines, there created a, a very large triangle in the middle of the Adirondacks. So were there when if when he was going to do his original work and gathering information and all and all that um, I'm still a little unclear you were talking about some of the some of the land had been granted to soldiers in the revolution and then they they let it go back or never took took uh, hold of it or whatever the case and then some of it through the through the the uh, depleted timber and oil reserves I guess the the land was left so, but in terms of just like neighbors, so to speak, uh, when when Colvin was there originally, were, there weren't people living in the area. I suppose just people who actually owned the land. Is that correct? There were um, there were small settlements. Um, certainly nowhere near the uh, the number of uh, towns and villages that exist today. Um, building roads was a very difficult. Uh, thing to do at that time up in the Adirondacks, and there was very few roads, but there there, there was uh, small settlements, uh, small mills uh, that would spring up, uh, lumbering operations, and that, that sort of thing. And It really was just, when, when, when Verplank was first in the Adirondacks, it was really just before the big influx of uh, tourism that the Adirondack uh, region became in, in later years. But by the uh, by the late 1800s, um, tourism in the Adirondacks was a, was a very big thing, and there was many what they called great camps um, that were put up by notable industrialists um, that really got got the ball rolling to where we are today. So it it uh, was attractive to people who kind of wanted to 
get away from it all, so to speak. That's, and that's correct. Get out in, into the wilderness. So in today's situation, uh, within the park itself, is everything owned by the park, or is there still private parcels that are just part of the park? It's about a 50-50 uh, mix. Um, a lot of the land is um, forever wild. And it, this entire park is about 5.8 million acres, and it's subject to uh, special zoning. Uh, and an agency called the Adirondack Park Agency uh, oversees the zoning within that. Uh, that 50 roughly 50% is still privately owned. Um, still, there's still some large uh, timber tracks that are still there, so so on. So are, are there on some of these lands or even on the park land, are, I mean, sometimes you go to a park and there's a big facility there where people can come and stay and visit through the park. Is there something like that or people just go and sort of rough it when they're there? Well, it's, it's, it's a good mix. Um, there's no, <clears throat> I guess you would say, park facility like pulling into the front of Yellowstone. Right. Uh, it's 5.8 million acres. It's, it's a very large area. And basically, most people that stay in the park, if they are not camping, pitching a tent on state lands, then they're probably staying in a local hotel, uh, which would, of course, right. be private. Yeah, that's, as you mentioned in the very beginning, just the whole concept of 5.0 million acres of parkland anywhere in New York, I think is hard for people to grasp because... I don't know. I, I think, for the most part, people aren't really students of, of geography very much these days. <laughs> and so you're right. People, you say New York, all they think about is Long Island, basically. That's, that's uh, correct. But New York is a big state altogether. I mean, this is a big portion of it, but it's it's a really it's a really big state. In and out of the park, that's, that's for sure. So we're a couple of minutes away from our uh, our next break, so I don't want to get too deeply into the activities part. When we come back, maybe uh, Brian can help us talk about some of the things that are going to take place and how people can uh, can get signed up to be there and, and all those kind of things. Talk some about who your speakers are and what their presentations are going to be. Um, so I don't know, Brian. We... I hate to get started, but <laughs> but uh, well, maybe we can just begin a little bit in a, in the minute or minute and a half we've got. We have uh, picked out a beautiful facility at the south end of Lake George, the Queen of American Lakes, uh, at the Fort William Henry Hotel and Conference Center. Uh, it's immediately adjacent to uh, replica replica of the actual Fort William Henry itself, uh, which is basically they're owned by the same people. So uh, we're going to be working right out of that facility in beautiful village of Lake George. Yeah, that, that'll be fantastic. I've actually been there to that place. My wife and I drove through there several years ago. I was actually at the, a conference in Vermont, and we decided to fly up and drive up to the Vermont conference and then drive across and take some time around Lake George and then we drove back down and flew home from Albany. And uh, so we we spent a, a, a fun time up there. Um, I guess the furthest north we got, I get to go around, the, if I remember correctly, to go around the, to the west side of the lake. I had to go near Ticonderoga somewhere, I guess. 
Uh, yes, that's correct. That's right. And uh, but it was such a beautiful place. It in a lot of ways reminded me of the Blue Ridge Mountains where I grew up. Just mountains are a little bigger sometimes, but but it was a gorgeous place. Well, let's go to break, and we'll come back and talk about what some of those activities are going to be. Okay. Attention, surveyors! Seanstead announces the Maggie, the next generation magnetic locator. The Maggie combines the best features of two flagship Seanstead products, the sensitivity and precision of the GA52CX and the visual display and single-handed operation of the GA92XT. Contact your dealer for details or go to www.seanstead.com. Seanstead, the best just got better. Whether cruising the strip at a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. Quick Stakes is your answer to staking. Lightweight, easy to ride on, easy to use, easy to find, and won't break your back carrying them like the old-fashioned wooden stakes. Have you tried a sample? If not... Get a pen and paper and write down this number, 800-438-0387, or go to quickstake.com, that's Q-U-I-K-S-T-A-K-E.com, and order your samples. Ask your surveying supply dealer for quickstakes today. Want to know if your Seanstead locator is still under warranty? Go to Seanstead.com and click on Warranty Finder in the lower left-hand corner. Enter your six-digit serial number, and it will tell you everything you need to know. Out of warranty? Click on Repair Department. But here's a tip. Before sending it in, pick up a $25 discount by going to Specials and Sales under the Buy Now tab at www.schonstedt.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Back with Jim Vienna and and Brian McGee talking about the upcoming Surveyors uh, Historical Society rendezvous um, up in uh, in New York. And as we were going to break, we were talking about the facility, uh, which I was... Glad to at least know where it is because I've, I've been there. Um, but we're also going to talk about some of the activities, who your speakers are going to be. And, and I know one of the things that always happens at a rendezvous, there's lots of outdoor activities. Um, I recall years ago when they did one here in in Virginia, mostly in Virginia, to rerun the Fairfax line, uh, which is about 70-some miles. And then was it two years ago it was out in the San Juans, I believe, I believe that was last year. Was that last year? Okay. Yeah. And but um, always seems to be so many activities going on, and and I think that obviously is one of the big draws for people to come. It's not just the whole time sitting in a in a classroom somewhere. There's actually a lot of activity going on. That's that's right, and that's that's what makes it a little different. Brian alluded earlier here today um, how the conference uh, Surveyors Historical Society conference is a little different than your. Your normal state conference and that uh, we and we're following the same format here that SHS has used successfully for for many years and that's where you you start your first day in class where you kind of learn about um, the areas you're going to go see the following day in the field and it, it really I think makes for a, a, a really great program that when you're out in the field you, you have learned the history about where you are and and you 
kind of look at it in those eyes. Have you picked out some specific places where you're going to look at look at marks? You know, we surveyors love looking at marks. Uh, that, that's correct. I did a I did a thing, a, sort of a comical thing, a few years ago about uh, a takeoff on Jeff Foxworthy, where I said you might be married to a surveyor if. And one of them was if every trip involves looking at survey marks. So <laughs> that's, that's just who we are. We can't help ourselves. But I was curious. Um, I mean, you were talking about how many marks there are. Are, it, are some of them going to be part of the activities? That's that's correct. Um, we're actually um, on Thursday, or excuse me, on Friday, our field day. We're actually uh, going to ascend um, one of the larger mountains in the area called. Uh, Gore Mountain, coincidentally. Um, this is another gore, uh, not the one I, I spoke about briefly earlier. And that was the uh, primary, uh, on the top of Gore Mountain was a primary triangulation station that Verplank uh, built, a uh, very elaborate wooden tower um, that we'll, we'll, we'll learn a little bit more about. Um, but we're going to ascend uh, by uh, gondola um, oh, wow. two-thirds of the way up. And, um, well, I'll, I'll just touch on this aspect a little bit. Uh, in conjunction with a uh, seminar, Milton Denny, uh, who we all know and, and love very much, uh, is giving, we're going to actually be turning period instruments um, from uh, a point about two-thirds of the way up Gore Mountain. We're gonna, everybody's going to have a chance to work with some antique instruments and turn some angles to uh, the points below, just like Colvin did. And we have a little hike if those if there's those are that are interested. Uh, we have a little uh, summit hike that'll um, take about two hours round trip uh, to walk up to the summit and view uh, the remnants of Colvin's uh, station and uh, bolt. And then we're back on down the mountain and on the buses and on our way to our next venue. Uh, <laughs> What's the elevation at the mountain? Uh, I believe. Brian, maybe you know. Um, I, I want to say it's somewhere around thirty-six hundred, maybe. Uh, I think that's about right. It's close to four thousand in that area. Okay, it's a, it's an active ski center. It's it's a, a one of the larger in the area, um, so it has all the facilities um, and such for for our group. Yeah, so, well, if it's a ski area, getting close to where you want to be, at least you'll be able to do without having to hike. I guess the last part of it is just uh, getting up to a, is it? You said there's an observation tower up there on the on the top? There is. There's a, there's a uh, metal fire tower that was left over from the days um, these fire towers were erected mm-hmm. in Adirondacks, um, obviously, to report and observe uh, forest fires. Uh, and they and that's a, a Colvin relationship too, because they the fire towers today are really descendants of Verplank Colvin's earlier designs for his triangulation towers. Oh wow! Um, so there's a, there's a whole pie in there. So he he set it up there for a different purpose, but it became, uh, if I understand you correctly, is sort of a pattern uh, in terms right. of how to build one. Well, he also did the hard work of clearing a lot of the summits of uh, trees so that uh, a tower, you know, you could be in a tower and, and look out. And, of course, his towers were made of wood that was available, you know, right there at the top of the mountain. Right. And they re- constantly were, you know, the wind would 
and storms would, would damage them, and he was constantly having to repair them. And, and he actually designed the first metal tower uh, that the state in the early 1900s uh, improved upon and, and built what's there today. Wow. That's pretty impressive. Uh, when you were talking about he and his crew building the towers, uh, that, to me that's a really interesting concept or perspective on the work that people did uh, throughout our history. You know, today we go out and maybe we have to climb a little bit to to find a mark or maybe there's something there that we can use for observation. Uh, we probably don't stop to think that at some point in time somebody had to actually build that. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's right. And, and as you're saying with them, they they actually built it from raw materials right there. Of course, they couldn't have couldn't have hauled them in, but that's still a lot of work. That's correct. So, were his? Did he have a a pretty big staff of people to help him do all this, or was this just with a few hands? Um, he kind of it depended on his funding. Um, you know, some years he he was not able to put many many surveyors in the field, and other years he he was uh, he. Kind of ran it uh, paramilitary style. It was broke up into divisions. For instance, one division was the Signal Tower Division, and all they did was travel all over the Adirondacks, um, rebuilding and repairing these uh, towers. Oh, wow. uh, he, had a, he had a leveling division, uh, triangulation division, and a, and a boundary division, uh, in essence, uh, not to mention the, the office staff to support all these um, different divisions. And not to mention that all of them had to have a cook. That's correct. <laughs> <laughs> there, there's some funny stories I won't get into right now with uh, with cooks and tents and, and that that type of thing. But yes, they had to. Uh, basically, you, you also had guides and, and uh, local people that were familiar with the area and the lines that were being run, um, and hunters to uh, supply the uh, the crews with food. Uh, so it was a big operation at times. So were, when they when the, all the work began, and because you're still kind of in the era when when we still had Native Americans living in some sites, were 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 there Native Americans there that were part of the process too? I, I don't believe so. Um, <laughs> I know at one point um, Verplank was up in what was called the Saint Regis uh, Indian Reservation, where there uh, there was quite a large uh, Indian population. Uh, he erected a tower and signal actually within the reservation, um, but I would say in the in this area of the country, uh, there, there there was not much of a uh, native uh, uh, a, a, a native amount uh, in this area. Right, but you know, again, thinking about just the the level of effort required to do the work that he and others did in in other places is. It's so foreign to our thinking because, yeah, every now and then we might have to go somewhere and camp out a little bit if we're going to be out in the wilderness. But for the most part, we don't do any of that stuff, and we easily forget how much effort was put into that, particularly considering what they had available to them at the time. It's not like they had all the modern conveniences we have. Yes, that's right. It was a, it was a dawn-to-dusk uh, operation. And, and then you, get, you have to remember too, at that time, uh, manpower was uh, was economical. Uh, mm-hmm. It was a lot easier to have thirty people working for you than a couple of expensive instruments. 
Right. Yeah. Uh, it's a little different today, but um, you know, it was it was easy to put twenty, thirty people in the field. I guess economically is, is the point. Right. And and those, I guess, even in those days, the instruments they needed weren't all that easy to acquire. No, they they were not. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, Verplank, uh, and we'll learn a little bit about this also. But Verplank um, borrowed, begged and borrowed uh, quality uh, Trotton and Sims uh, instruments um, from the uh, Albany Institute, uh, instruments from the Dudley Observatory, uh, wherever he could get them. And and a lot of this, you know, this is kind of the the neat part of the story is. That, a lot of this entire survey was funded by by Verplank personally. Uh, he kept it going for many years when the state did not provide funding. Um, so it's it, that's a, another part of the story. Wow, that's that's dedication. <laughs> when, <laughs> yes, when you, it is. When you believe so, and I guess one of the other things that seems a bit remarkable to me is that. In a sense, if I'm understanding this correctly, it was kind of a part-time thing. I mean, he still had a job, right? Well, that was his job. Um, he really was not a, uh, I guess you would say, a state employee or a state agency. Um, he was in charge of it, and basically every year he had to have uh, uh, his contract, I guess you could say, renewed by the state. Uh, some years they did, some years they did not. So he wasn't a, uh, for lack of a better term, a bureaucratic leader who orchestrated from someplace. He lived it as well. He he did it. He was a real hard charger. Uh, I don't think uh, we would have enjoyed working for him as surveyors at the time. <laughs> um, as I said, it was kind of a paramilitary outfit, um, but he did what he had to do to uh, produce the results he did. And, uh, right. A lot of interesting stories. Absolutely. Well, that's that's really uh, a great story to be told, and one, to my knowledge, that hasn't all re- hasn't been told all that much. I mean, maybe there's... no. That's that's correct. It's uh, he's really kind of a an unsung hero, um, even here in New York. Um, a lot of people maybe have heard of him, but they really don't know what he did. Uh, they don't know his involvement in that. Really, he was. In my mind, he was one of the uh, premier advocates for the Adirondack Park. Um, that's a lot of people just think of a park that it just appeared. <laughs> yeah, all of a sudden, it's there, right? <laughs> Pretty much, uh, yeah. you know. There was a lot of work by a lot of people to to make that happen back in back in the day. Yeah, and just the just the enormity of it is is overwhelming, really. Well, Brian, we got off off topic a little when we're talking about the the program so when we come back for our last segment i definitely want to get make sure we could get all that covered so let's go to break and we'll be back shortly okay attention surveyors seanstead announces the maggie the next generation magnetic locator the Maggie combines the best features of two flagship Seanstead products, the sensitivity and precision of the GA52CX and the visual display and single-handed operation of the GA92XT. Contact your dealer for details or go to www.seanstead.com. Seanstead, the best just got better. With all the back and forth in today's politics, it seems as though the Constitution gets lost in the mix. 
If you want to brush up on your Constitution, then join Michael Conley every Wednesday from 4 to 5 p.m. for the show Our Constitution on AmericasWebRadio.com. Quick Stakes is your answer to staking. Lightweight, easy to ride on, easy to use, easy to find, and won't break your back carrying them like the old-fashioned wooden stakes. Have you tried a sample? If not, get a pen and paper and write down this number, 800-438-0387, or go to quickstake.com, that's Q-U-I-K-S-T-A-K-E.com, and order your samples. Ask your surveying supply dealer for quickstakes today. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. Want to know if your Seanstead locator is still under warranty? Go to Seanstead.com and click on Warranty Finder in the lower left-hand corner. Enter your six-digit serial number, and it will tell you everything you need to know. Out of warranty? Click on Repair Department. But here's a tip. Before sending it in, pick up a $25 discount by going to Specials and Sales under the Buy Now tab at www.schonstedt.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. We're back with Jim Vienna and Brian McGee. And Brian, as we started the last segment, we started to get into the program and the speakers, and then we got sidetracked, which is fine because it was cool to talk about, but I, don't, I want to make sure we cover that part. So if you could tell us about that. Sure. Uh, well, Wednesday is the welcome uh, Wednesday night there will be a reception and hopefully a screening of a film by a local documentary filmmaker, Bill Killian, uh, all about Vera Plank Calvin. Uh, we think that might be the world premiere of the video, uh, PBS-type uh, film. So we're looking forward to that. We'll also have Adirondack musicians there as well as... Uh, barbecue cookout dinner and then Thursday is a full day of classroom sessions uh, mostly about for playing Calvin uh, the great gore Jim's going to do a nice presentation on one of the surveys in particular of Warren County and Essex County line which will include a field trip to a monument location on Friday uh, Thursday, we're also having a lunch on Lake George uh, on a cruise, a uh, two-hour tour of Lake George and lunch. Uh, hopefully, it's a nice day. It's a beautiful lake, being prime leaf peeping season there. So we're looking forward to that as well. Uh, the classroom activities will also include uh, Milton Denny, in the afternoon, and uh, also a presentation on the W and L E Gurley uh, instrument makers from Troy, New York, which is not far away from where we're going to be. Uh, we have two gentlemen, William Skerritt, who is a Gurley expert, and also Brad Uder from 
state archives that have uh, Gurley corporate records, and they are working on a presentation of Gurley in relation to Veriplank Calvin. That sounds like a really in- interesting one. Gurley is uh, world famous for their instruments, and uh, we have had an occasion to tour their factory in the past, so we're looking forward to seeing what uh, what they have up for us. Uh, hopefully they'll be bringing some display as well with that. I was wondering about, uh, and I don't want to shortcut your program, so keep talking. I have a question I'll ask you later. <laughs> Okay, Friday is our field trip. Uh, Jim spoke about the trip to Gore Mountain in the morning and then followed by a trip to the Warren Essex County Line site uh, on the way up to uh, Blue Mountain Lake, New York. And that's uh, the Adirondack Museum that has a display of Calvin equipment and there'll be a presentation by Adirondack historian Jerry Pepper on Calvin's contribution to the Adirondack Park. Uh, Thursday, or Friday night rather, is the uh, swap meet. I'm sorry, that's Thursday night is the swap meet, right? That's correct. Uh, so we have uh, some items of interest hopefully coming. If you have an item you want to bring, feel free. Uh, Friday is the banquet and auction, and we have already lined up some premier items for the auction. So bring your checkbook <laughs> and uh, pay the net. Uh, Saturday, there's going to be two tracks. For those who want to take a tour of the area, we'll have a motor coach going to the Olympic Village of Lake Placid, New York. Uh, it's an all-day trip. The Olympic sites are there. And it's a nice village to just stop and visit and have lunch in. The other track is uh, one class in the morning uh, with Milton Denny performing uh, the deflection of the vertical in large-scale retracement surveys, followed by a walking tour next door of Fort William Henry. And in addition to that, beyond a little bit to the east of that is the remnants of Fort George, where the state has an ongoing uh, archaeology dig going on at the moment, and will be uh, guided by the leader of that, uh, Dr. David Starbuck, uh, who is very active and well-known in that field. So that's an active dig site, then? An active dig site, and we'll be able to get into it uh, with uh, Mr. Starbuck. Well, that's that's a jam-packed program. I can't imagine that there isn't something in there for everybody. <laughs> There's just so many different things to do. And although it's not connected to surveying specifically, that Olympic Village site sounds like an interesting one too. Right. For those that aren't familiar with the area, that might be uh, an interesting little tour. Uh, even if you're coming from out of the area, you might want to stay another day and and go up to Lake Placid for the rest of the weekend. Um, we also have plenty of spouse activities. Uh, we have a local author uh, that's going to bring her book uh, about North 
the North Country's shadowy past of crime and dark deeds. So that might be of interest. Uh, there'll be a shopping merchant mall for local vendors uh, to display their wares as well. So on the Olympic site, just this is out of my curiosity, was that site built for the Olympics specifically? Uh, no, Lake, well, Lake Placid was there before the Olympics, and Whiteface Mountain is the ski center that was there. Okay. Then they, uh, I'm not sure that how it all came together in 1932 for the original Olympics there, but they have uh, ski jumps there now, and they also have a bobsled run, and the ice rink is also right downtown. And then, of course, they came back in 1980s, uh, built a, almost all new facilities, built a new bobsled run, a uh, new ice rink. Uh, and that's right downtown also, and that's the home of the, uh, can you believe, ice, ice hockey game Is that where the Americans beat the Russians. Oh, yeah, exactly. I... Uh for some reason, I, I, I have in the back of my mind seeing some old, old film of skating competition at Lake Placid actually being outdoors. Is that a, an the, incorrect memory the, back in the 30s? No, nope, the, uh, the uh, outdoor ice rink is still there. It's right in front of the high school uh, oh, okay. next to the, exist, the new ice rink. So the outdoor rink is still there. Uh, the original ice rink is also still there. The 1932 ice rink still exists there, and that's used all the time as well. But yeah, in the winter, they have the ice rink open outdoors. If I could follow up briefly, Kurt, and just uh, point our listeners, um, they can download off the Internet um, the full 13-page conference journal and that can be found at www.surveyorshistoricalsociety.com and surveyors historical society is all one word uh, they can go there and uh, they can read a, a lot more detail on the classes and the, the area that we'll be visiting uh, and if they have any questions um, they can get a hold of uh, Melinda Gillipin. She's the executive director of uh, Surveyors Historical Society. Uh, her contact information is all there on the website, and she's been a huge asset um, to the uh, conference committee uh, in helping us put this all together, and she is uh, fully versed in everything being done and, and is definitely the, the person to get a hold of. Yeah, Melinda does a good job. She also works for the Ohio Group, and that's correct. Uh, I've been to a number of their conferences. She she always does a really good job putting things together. So I was I was um, when when the historical society decided to go in a direction of having having somebody with her skills. I was I was happy that they chose her because she does, she has always done a good job, and I know she's going to do is doing a good job for you guys. Um, let's see. What else have I forgot to ask you? If, if there's something on your mind that I didn't ask about, be, be sure to let me know. Well, I, it's going to be a, a very uh, a fun conference, I believe. Uh, I know we're extremely, the conference committee, 
Brian and myself. Uh, we're very excited about it. We we hope we put together here a, a very interesting format. Um, the, the classes that are going to be taught, the, the seminars, they're just this is subject matter that has simply not been um, touched on in the detail and the level that that we're going to. Um, for instance, just the, the girly presentation. Uh, you have the foremost expert on girly, Bill Scarrett, coming in along with um, Brad Utter from the museum, where they're going to they're going to bring very rare and seldom seen uh, girly instruments. Um, and, and there's there's quite a following a, a girly uh, out there, um, but this is a chance where uh, where it's all going to be put together in one room. Um, and some of the store, some of the seminars on Colvin, just uh, like the Great Gore by uh, seminar by Richard Bennett, it's the it's never really been put together in, in that type of format before, and uh, you're really going to learn an awful lot in a, in a short amount of time. <laughs> well, that's great. It sounds like a really great program. Um, for a minute and a half out, so I, I did want to ask. I'm sure it's on the website. But uh, people will want to know uh, for hotel reservations. They're gonna, will they be open fairly soon? The Go ahead, Brian. Yeah. Yep, the hotel is open now. Oh, it's uh, open now. Okay. Call, call on the hotel. Um, make sure you tell them you're with the rendezvous uh, because those rooms have been blocked. So if they tell you it's full, please verify that by letting them know that. Uh, you're in, interested in the rooms that are blocked for the rendezvous. Great. Well, uh, we've got 40 seconds, but I was so intrigued when you talked about the lunch on the lake. I'm really going to be sorry I missed that. <laughs> oh, that's a lot of fun. And, and let me just add quickly, uh, Kurt, the, um, the registration period um, where you're under the early bird period right now, and that will end on July 19th. Um, after July 19th and up until August 20th, uh, unfortunately, the price will go up about $50 a head. Um, but our registration closes August 20th, uh, and then it'll be on a on a, on a basis where if we, if we do have positions, we'll, we'll go from there. Sounds great. Well, thank you so much both for being with me. It's been a great a great time, and I'm sure we've we'll spark a lot of interest in the in the in the uh, the rendezvous. So thank you again. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.